3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respects to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to our first live show for 2022. It's 7 a.m. and we, yeah, it's Tuesday, the 18th of January. My name is Fung, and we've also got Evie here in the studios today. Good morning, Evie. Hi, how are you? I'm well, thank you. Welcome back. It's so good to be back. I've just been like in the last couple of weeks, I'm like, oh man, I really miss it. (laughs) It was a bit surreal to (laughs) take a break for four weeks. Yeah, um, I haven't even had that long a holiday from actual work. (laughs) Yeah, and look, it's been quite scary here in Nam uh, as it has been everywhere around the country uh, with regards to Omicron. So, yeah, what have you been up to? I hope you've been staying safe. Have you been able to still have a good time? Yeah, yeah, it's been a weird time, hasn't it? I've managed to somehow... um, dodge Omicron, even though like every second Instagram story is just another person with their rat test. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, I I kind of had a bit of a, I was so kind of sick of it around New Year's that I had a bit of a quesera moment and I was like, okay, everyone, you can rat test it. Like, you know, take a rat test before you come to New Year's if you've got one or, you know, just make sure that you're okay. And we'll have like, you know, maybe four or five people at New Year's. Luckily, no one tested positive after the fact. (laughs) Miracle of miracles. So, um, you know, managed to get at least some sort of happiness and being uh, like together with people around New Year's. I sort of like tried to play it safe here and there, just, you know, if we're going to go out, like at the very least, just make sure we're outside. But um, yeah, um, me and my partner have managed to dodge it so far, which is good. Yeah, I, I'm, I've been the same as well. I think what I found after two plus years of, of COVID <laughs> is that I just can't, I just don't know how to be spontaneous anymore. So oh, if I don't I have anything planned, I'll just stay at home because I can't remember what it's like just to... Yeah. Like go somewhere without having booked something or made arrangements with friends well in advance. And so I guess that's also working out well for me, yeah. staying, <laughs> staying indoors at, yeah. at my house. Like, so, like I've got a friend who's got her wedding um, that's been scheduled three, rescheduled three times over the course of COVID. Um, that's coming up this Friday. Um, and... She was like, I could reschedule it another time, but like people like who are coming to the wedding again, it's very small. Uh, they're like, don't worry about it. You know, we'll isolate beforehand. We'll make sure we test and everything. You know, everyone's pretty like sick, like pretty tight about it and making sure they stay indoors and like everyone's sort of ready for it, yeah. which is really sweet as well. Like, I think it's really good that, you know, even with a sort of a you take your own risk attitude to it because that's all we've got left, um, people still want to look out for each other and make sure they have like, you know, are able to have those milestones together. So. Totally. I think th- that's the one thing that hasn't changed. If anything, that's really ramped up is just community and care, yeah. which is really lovely, but also um, like it, it shouldn't have to 
exactly that way. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, coming up on today's show, uh, yesterday Carnegie spoke with Rose Tung, who is a an artist and a political activist from the band Attitude. So we're going to listen to that interview. Um, and then I also spoke with Elise West, who we know from the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. Uh, we spoke about uh, quite a quite a number of things, including uh, Australia purchasing uh, $3.5 billion worth of tanks. And then Evie, um, at yeah. the end of today's show... Um, I'm going to be giving a few updates about the federal government's religious discrimination bill. We've spoken about it a few times uh, towards the end of last year. Uh, there had been a bit of chopping and changing just to sort of um, appease certain interest groups. And uh, it's been quite concerning. Uh, a lot of people in the LGBTQI community are keeping a very close eye on things, especially since the bill has been dragging on for quite some time now um, to try and placate um, various like sort of parties that are interested in shaping it um, in a way that will allow exemptions. Um, and so I've got some updates on that um, and the kind of clauses that the government are interested in adding and how that could impact LGBTQI plus people. Yes, I was reading off about it yesterday uh to prepare myself to talk to you because I know you're such an expert. And there were <laughs> there were a few things that I found very concerning. So very much looking forward to asking you some questions about that. Yeah. Uh, we might just jump straight into a couple of news headlines though. So these are the this is the news for Tuesday, 18th of January 2022. As we're all aware of, there was a huge volcanic eruption on Tonga over the weekend. Uh, the undersea volcano Hunga Tonga Hunga Ha'apai. Uh, erupted on Saturday, 15th of January, triggering a tsunami and covering Tonga with ash. According to uh, the Tongan High Commission in Australia's deputy head of mission, and this was updated, this from yesterday, um, there have been no confirmed deaths so far. The incident has gone down, though, making it really hard for families to contact each other. And this has extended to government websites and other official sources, which were without updates on Sunday afternoon. Authorities are still waiting to make contact with some coastal areas and smaller islands, and there is a real need for for water as the ash from the volcano has contaminated water supplies in Nuku Alofa. And I know there are um, quite a few uh, grassroots campaigns and and GoFundMe's floating out there, so um, might try and source a couple and put them in the show notes later this morning. It's really scary because Tonga's completely flat. Yes. Um, I, I didn't realise this actually until I was reading about it. Um, and yeah, so the the likelihood of it flooding almost immediately is just there. Like It's yeah. quite scary. But, you know, that it's good to see like, you know, various people coming back and being able to communicate and get in touch and see how they're going. But yeah, um, yeah. It's, it's scary because, um, you know, Pacific climate worries have been talking about the fact that Tonga is at risk of... of um, flooding and drowning uh, for yeah. quite a number of years and and this is turning it into a really scary reality. The other thing that makes things complicated is that Tonga has been, I believe, COVID-free um, and so uh, getting help from other countries can be a bit complicated because oh, yeah. obviously they don't want any outbreaks there. Mm, mm. Um, okay, in other news, on Sunday, around 20 women gathered in front of Kabul University to protest for the protection of women's rights. They were also calling for justice over the fatal shooting of Zainab Abdul. 
Abdullahi at a police checkpoint and the disappearance of a Herat prison manager, Alia Azizi. Taliban fighters then arrived at the protest in several vehicles and used pepper spray to disperse protesters. Since being reinstated, the Taliban authorities have blocked women, public sector employees from returning to work. Uh, Many secondary schools have not reopened for girls and public universities have shut. Further to these restrictions, the Taliban have banned unsanctioned protests and frequently have frequently intervened to forcefully break up rallies demanding rights for women um, like this one. Yeah. Um, just another uh, headline for today. Um, this deals with domestic violence and a child's death, so um, in case that might be triggering to you. Um, on January the 13th, um, so last week, uh, Poonam Sharma was murdered in a Mill Park home in Melbourne. Uh, she was stabbed multiple times, allegedly by her husband. Uh, unfortunately, also one of her young children um, was also um, stabbed and um, subsequently passed away. Um, Neighbours gathered round to, you know, remember Poonam as well and her children. Uh, it's a really shocking, awful sort of incident so early in the year to, like, you know, 16 days into 2022 and right. we've already lost Poonam and also one other person. So two people, like 16 days into 2022 that we've lost domestic violence. Um, uh, South Asian Today also says that, you know, um, Indian women in Australia can be at particular risk of family violence, with an increasing high number of cases reported to police and community leaders. Um, they usually cite dowry and regressive gender roles. Uh, a 2020 major survey of approximately 1,400 migrant and refugee women across Australia uh, found that one third have experienced some form of domestic and family violence. Um, this comes also coincidentally with the federal government uh, announcing its uh, strategy and um, invitation for stakeholders in uh, developing its plan to end gendered violence in Australia. Um, There's a very short uh, sort of uh, contract period for setting that up and for um, charities to consider how they will be contributing to that plan. Um, We're definitely going to be talking about that on the show Mm -hmm. over the next couple of weeks. Um, You know, there's some, like... It is one thing to to announce a grand plan to end gendered violence, another thing altogether um, to be able to resource it effectively. Yes. Um, well, we'll keep an eye out on that and and keep discussing it as developments arrive. Uh, we're going to take a very quick break, though. We'll be back with a song right after this. Questions about COVID 19? Drummond Street Services, Queer Space, and Queer Space Youth have answers. The team at Drummond Street has partnered with community organisations across Victoria to hear from multicultural LGBTIQ people about their COVID 19 questions and concerns. You can now access fact sheets and videos that directly address community concerns about COVID 19 and provide accurate information about vaccines and keeping safe during COVID. Head to cfre.org.au forward slash LGBTIQ COVID to find out more and access resources in languages including Arabic, Mandarin, Farsi, Tamil, French, Spanish, Japanese, Malay, plus English and Easy English. That's cfre.org.au forward slash LGBTIQ COVID. Drummond Street Services, Queer Space and Queer Space Youth 
keeping multicultural LGBTIQ plus community safe during COVID. A 3CR supporter. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. Welcome back to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. Uh, we've got a song coming up that we'd like to play for you now. It's called Biryani by Ashwara. She's Indian-born and based in Nam. Um, it's a mix of rap and pop and bhangra drumming and R&B trilling as well. Uh, this track comes from her 2021 EP, Nocturnal Hours. Welcome back to 3CR. That was Ashwarya with her song Biryani. We're now going to cross to Carnegie who spoke with 
artist Rose Tung yesterday. Uh, here's Carnegie uh, as she explains more. Yesterday, I had the pleasure of speaking with Rose Tung, who is a New York City-based activist, journalist, artist, and Tiananmen Massacre survivor. Rose has spent time as a journalist in Australia, covering police brutality against First Nations people, among other important social issues. Her band, a trio of Asian women called Attitude, plays jazz and post-punk with pointed commentary about issues of race, gender, the pandemic, and political autonomy. She talks to us about activism and art, surviving the Tiananmen Massacre, widespread racism against the Asian community, and Attitude's new album, Pause and Effect. Welcome to Tuesday Breakfast, Rose. Can you please start by telling us a little bit more about yourself and your background as an artist, journalist, and activist? Hi, Kanevi. Thank, thank you so much for the invite. It really gets me nostalgic for Australia, and I love Melbourne. It's the most cultured city in Australia. <laughs> um, I am a fourth-generation artist in my family, uh, and my both parents and my grandparents, uh, my grandfather, my uncle and aunt and cousins are all artists. Uh, I, I think it's. I agree with my uh, friend who's an Indian uh, poet, uh, poet based in Kerala, <laughs> Lakshmi Bai. Um, she, uh, after she uh, heard my debut album, she wrote me an email. She said, I'm an activist because... I'm an artist. I think she summed it up pretty uh, uh, precisely. Um, it took me decades to realize that uh, my parents didn't want to me, uh, me to be an artist. Uh, they did not want me to be involved in politics, let alone being an activist or journalist, uh, because they themselves suffered a lot from the politics, being persecuted for decades by just being an artist, wanting to do art, true art. And I feel it very, very strongly uh, by you know growing up in China, then studying and working uh, as a radio journalist in Australia in the 90s, and later on working for newspapers and magazines and CNN in Hong Kong, witnessing the social changes in these countries and now in the United States. I really feel as an artist, it's my mission to help promote justice and um, trying to, uh, how can I say, I, I always wanted to use art to, to help people, to mobilize people, to, to basically, you know, to build a better world, a more beautiful world. Um, I was invited by a very prominent free jazz musician, uh, in New York to uh, uh, to form bands uh, like six, seven years ago, but I was too busy organizing uh, human rights campaigns globally, uh, like boycotting Beijing's bid for the 2022 Winter Olympics. I started doing that like six years ago, and uh, uh, as well as running, organizing a global campaign, trying to get hundreds of Chinese human rights lawyers to be released by the Chinese authorities. Um, and uh, it was actually, it was Trump's election win in 2016 that prompted me to use music to mobilize people. Because as a visual artist, 
uh, I see the power of visual art, art, and as a journalist, I see the power of journalism, but I was also disillusioned by the mainstream media. Uh, mainstream media trying to take advantage of social media, copying, literally <laughs> copying tweets and social media, um, as well as being very narrow-minded and um, not to mention uh, full of white supremacy and elitism. I left journalism uh, to teach at Princeton University, thinking education would help. And later on, I, I, uh, when I became a mother, after I had my daughter, I realized the most important thing to do is to do it from ground up, grassroots. And music is a very quick and powerful weapon or tool, if you call it, to heal and mobilize people. Because after the 2016 elections, lots of people, especially in New York, were really depressed and confused and enraged, but did not know what to do. Mm. So started from then, I really started from scratch. I'm not trained in music, uh, music or performances. I'm largely self-taught. I do not read music for a purpose intentionally because I'm anti-institution. Mm. I think music and art, literature, journalism too, have been heavily institutionalized and become elitist forms mm. and away from grassroots communities, away from real people, away from real feelings mm. too, even the real feelings of those elites uh, and have become very white um, and uh, very male-dominated still. It's, what, 21st century? Uh, what are we doing here, right? So anyway, um, I, since then, I uh, formed more than uh, 30 bands in New York and uh, Seattle. Uh, we have uh, toured. Um, I formed, say, a special band with young uh, Americans. Um, mostly white <laughs> males. <laughs> I, I always say to them, use your white privilege to help the world uh, because you got your privileges and um, I'm counter brainwash you. <laughs> That's my counter brainwashing campaign. <laughs> um, not just counter brainwashing young Chinese who've been brainwashed by the Chinese authorities, but we're, I'm talking about the global brainwashing everywhere. Uh, we were brought up, I was brought up, you know, drawing Roman and Greek busts um, and worshipping European uh, civilizations and American culture, pop culture, um, and believing that's the highest art form, that's this civilization, America is the paradise. And the Trump election really gave us a very rude awakening, including myself. I mean, be before I was already disillusioned, but that one was like, it felt so close. It's like the end of the world is yeah. right here with us. Uh, so I think uh, music to me, uh, plus I already know a bunch of uh, really, really pioneering revolutionary musicians in New York who are also very prominent, uh, including black musicians and who are already activists themselves. Uh, and I even formed 
uh, bands with staunch Trump supporters. Really? Uh, yes, yes, staunch Trump supporters. But now I cut him off because he's an anti-vaxxer, anti-masker. It's just a bit too much. <laughs> I even want, went on Fox to talk about Hong Kong because I thought this is the time we all come together. Our common enemy is the uh, fuglies. I learned it from an Australian college friend when we did uh, when we participated in a women's march in Washington D.C. in 2017 in January. And uh, Sarah, my uh, college um, mate from uh, Macquarie University, told me, "Oh, they're just a bunch of fuglies." I said, "Oh, what? <laughs> I had forgotten what it means." Since then, uh, I've used it in a lot of my performances. Fuglies, my campaign against fuglies. So in um, the album Pause and e e e Effect, y you will hear uh, I say fuglies yeah. all the time. <laughs> so you've been an activist for a very, very long time, um, ever since you survived the Tiananmen massacre. I imagine going through that quite early on in your life has played a huge part in how your activism has evolved um, and your pro-democracy protests in Beijing as well. Can you tell us a bit more about that? The Tiananmen movement. At that time, I was uh, 20 years old. I was a first-year student studying, uh, majoring in English. Uh, at the beginning, I, I was kind of nonchalant. I, I was cynical because politics to us was, you know, all about brainwashing. Uh, and, and I wasn't interested in that. Um, it was when the students, more and more thousands, we're talking about thousands of students and civilians joined in the hunger strike. And days and weeks passed uh, the Chinese government, the top leaders, were, they were like, they, they had gone AWOL. Uh, and the national TV was blank. Nobody knew what was going on. And that time I joined the movement. I was outraged. Mm. The, the kids are uh, starving themselves and some of the students even went on, uh, what do you call it, water strike. They refused to drink water. And that's very dangerous. So I joined the picket line. And uh, uh, I didn't want to uh, go on hunger strike because I don't agree with such uh, means uh, as a protest. But I supported them. So I joined the picket line and quickly uh, to protect them. And uh, also I volunteered to be an interpreter for foreign crews who landed there actually to interview to cover the historical visit by Mikhail Gorbachev the then Soviet Union's uh, Communist Party leader, uh, who was hailed as a major reformist. And we all like had a lot of admiration and respect uh, for him. Um, so the journalists, including a lot of Australian journalists from all major media outlets, went there, but they parachuted there without uh, you know, learning Mandarin, uh, with very little knowledge of uh, uh, China, and a lot of them, of course, are white males. So I, I literally, they're, they're at a loss uh, in the streets and in Tiananmen Square. So I, I, I approached them and I said, can I help you? And I, I started to uh, translate their interviews. Uh, that's how I was inspired by these journalists. 
uh, especially a woman journalist called Cindy Strand. At that time, I did not know her name. She was a producer with CNN. Uh, I met her uh, right at the dawn of the massacre, in the middle of the massacre in Tiananmen Square. And I, I will never forget that this courageous woman with a cameraman and, and uh, interviewing the, the students. Uh, and uh, I, I went to, uh, I had already uh, stayed in the square for the whole night and it was a stampede after the tanks surrounded us, flattened all the tents. And I suspect a lot of students and civilians were still inside the tents because minutes before the tanks, hundreds of tanks rolled in, I went into those uh, tents uh, because I needed to pee. I, I wanted to find an empty tent, but I couldn't find an empty tent. Every tent, we're talking about hundreds of tents here, uh, every tent was occupied. And very soon the tanks rolled in uh, without any warming, flattened all the tents, including a big statue called uh, Goddess of Democracy, right in front of us. And the soldiers were holding machine guns and big sticks. They surrounded us and shot the loudspeakers of the student radio station. We had a student radio station broadcasting the old fashioned way. Um, you know, through loudspeakers day in, day out for, uh, for two months inside the square. Uh, we occupied the square since the end of April until uh, the morning of 4th of June 1989. So that's like uh, a month and a half. We're the first occupied movement participants and starters or leaders. Anyway, so when the tanks rolled in, uh, we we actually did not panic. Some of us were singing international. Some of us were like singing pop songs. And a lot of us were really willing to die from Uyghurs as a decoration. Because as an artist, I, I like the decoration of the, uh, the knives. I never used it to cut anything, not even fruits. But anyway, so I thought that was the moment I could die for revolution. And I wasn't afraid of it. I cycled for 25 kilo kilometers from my university to Tiananmen Square, willing to die for revolution. When I went to the square, there were only a couple of thousand students and civilians in the square. So we stayed in the square for the whole night until the tanks rolled in. That was a stampede. I was caught between the stampede after stumbling over several bodies. It was all chaos. People were crying, screaming all around us. All I heard was like the, the weapons beating people's flesh, that kind of blunt noise. Not to mention when the hundreds of tanks rolled in was the loudest noise I ever heard in my life, still to this day, very deafening. Uh, it, it was the moment when I felt it was the state violence on full display was, was the Chinese Communist Party's war against us, ordinary people, students, civilians, who we, all we wanted was to vote, to have democracy. And they wouldn't even give a chance to have a dialogue. And they are on the winning side because they got the weapons. I still go through therapy these days for PTSD, but PTSD, 
I'm talking about on top of many other things like domestic violence. Uh, uh, and I became a journalist and ended up working for ABC Radio in Perth. But it was the domestic violence, state violence I, su uh, I survived and sexual assault, lots of abuses in my life. I didn't ask for it. You, you know, as a woman, being a woman is already a target, a victim. Absolutely. I don't want to be called a victim, right? And that was a fantastic interview that Carnegie did with Rose Tang. It was just part one, though. Um, here is a song from her band's new album, Pause and Effect, called Give Me a Mic. Give me a stage, I'll engage. Give me a podium, I'll perform. Give me a mic, I'll speak, rant, chant, sing. But wait, was I already born with a microphone in my mouth? Was I born with a sword in my hand? Am I already airborne as a bird? I know my destination and destiny. I may be small, but I think big. If I can't be seen, make sure I'm heard. If others aren't heard or seen, I make sure they're heard and seen. Make sure others also know we're all born with mics in our mouths, swords in our hands, microphones, bullhorns, our weapons, smartphones, tablets, computers, our the song Gimme a Mic 
by Rose Tongue's band Attitude. We are now going to jump back into part two of Carnegie's interview with Rose, where she talks about the meaning behind the lyrics and the racism she and her bandmates face as Asian women in the music industry. Over and above being a woman, being an Asian woman. And, you know, that's one of the main themes I think that um, your band attitude kind of goes into about the combination of racism and sexism that Asian women have historically faced and are currently facing, which is even more exacerbated at the moment because of the pandemic. But, you know, there's, yes. a, there's a long history of racism and sexism against Asian women in the world, you know, stemming back to the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1882, then the... Yes quote-unquote yellow fever panic um, and just you know extremely harmful stereotypes about Asian women that have kind of just been around primarily to benefit white men and white supremacy yeah and, and your lyrics really explore these themes and I can feel your feelings about these things and you know you, you having just explained a bit of your background you know I can absolutely feel that in, in your songs and in your lyrics so this is obviously really impacted your music and your art. Thank you. So I, um, since I moved to uh, the United States in 2005 from Hong Kong, um, Hong Kong is another story. I really lost hope for Hong Kong and, uh, you know, look at Hong Kong now. I, I you know, I'm a Hong Kong resident as well. Um, but in, in the United States, I was really shocked by the widespread racism against um, people of Asian descent, and of course, uh, especially women, especially LGBTQ uh, plus people. Uh, and uh, just two days ago, no, actually, was it Monday? Uh, an Asian American woman was shoved down the platform uh, of a train, which I usually take our train in Times Square at 9.30 in the morning, rush hour still, and uh, she was killed that way. And another um, uh, Chinese-American man who was so poor, who lost his restaurant job at the beginning of the pandemic and, and became almost homeless, he was collecting empty bottles and cans for a living. And he was beaten up by a bunch of people, a uh, bunch of men. Uh, and uh, then he died eight months later. So many stories, not to mention the Atlanta massacre. So anyway, in 2019, after two years uh, in this uh, music, uh, I wouldn't say business, but playing in bands, I was quite shocked by the racism from uh, people of uh, all walks of life. Of course, mainly other musicians and audiences as well. I'm talking about including um, black and brown people, uh, including uh, male musicians, it's, it's like, you know, them hitting on me, being sleazy on me, sexually uh, harassing me, uh, even like, oh, you know, like touch me, like, like in the lyrics. It's like so commonplace. Mm. And then the white people, the white musicians who appear really woke and really nice, when the racist, racist incidents happen right in front, front of their eyes at a concert happening to me, and they're all silent. They did not do anything. 
I was really shocked. And I'm talking about this, this, these people are very well educated and very woke people who who be holding like Black Lives Matter placard all the time in their gigs or, or are shouting those slogans uh, louder than us. When those things, when Black Lives Matter movement happened, it was the white people urging me, oh, you got to go protesting. I just thought, get out of here. I've been protesting all my adult life. Now you, 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 you realize there's an issue going on. There's racism. Um, it, it's, it's really infuriating. It's really hard to describe to you. It happens all the time. Exactly. And it's just too many incidents. The lyrics are based on the real incidents. I experienced experienced by and witnessed or witnessed by me and my bandmates, uh, the um, Taiwanese drummer um, Wen Ting Wu uh, and uh, Japanese saxophonist Ayumi Ishito. Uh, when we got together, even though they admitted, well, oh, oh, women band is that a girls band? It's kind of cheesy. But when I said the purpose of forming this band, performing these songs. Then they all like, yes, 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 it happened to me. I, I saw this, it happened to me, blah, blah, blah. And being a musician as a nation, a woman, um, it's, it's just like not taken seriously at all by anyone. Well, to me, I think that, you know, when I listened to the album, for me, it was so cathartic in a way because I can relate uh -huh. to so much that you sing about and so many of the lyrics and... I think most women of color around the world can feel the effects of the rise of white supremacy that's happening at the moment. It's absolutely refreshing to listen to three Asian women, you know, just telling it how it is, which is, yeah, I think it's incredible. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, and, and also we, I think, because, um, you know, this is not a knee-jerk reaction to the recent spate of hate crimes against Asian people in the United States. That's why, like in the press release and the, you know, the um, album, uh, the uh, record label, ESP Disc, the record label manager, Steve Hoche, uh, re, re, you know, uh, stressed the, uh, the band was formed in 2019. At that time, we're not even... Um, planning to form a band, were invited by hosts of the annual Dissident Arts Festival in New York. And the theme in 2019, that was, oh, wow, the pre-pandemic time, uh, the theme was Silence No More, women's rights. I was originally invited to do a solo, uh, um, and I thought, if I need to speak up, why not inviting more Asian women, Asian uh, female musicians, and our voices, the solidarity will be bigger and stronger. And uh, it's very important for us to come together despite the differences, because actually I think it's our duty to raise the awareness to counter brainwash them to educate them and take charge instead of being a, like cute oh sweet little victim a little asian babe looking cute you know australia is very deeply racist um very so it's i think it's important it's important to talk about that on on the radio on tv um i feel like 
it's not often kind of called out for what it is. You know, America gets a lot of airtime for being racist, which they are, of course, but um, Australia doesn't quite as much. And I think it's an important thing to note, I think, for women here. Australia and the, Mer- uh, and the United States, a lot of these countries, the so-called new continent, yeah. they were built on racism. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. So it's very difficult to, um, as you say, counter brainwash people. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that would be the dream. So Attitude's new album, Pause and Effect, is out now on Bandcamp, which we will link later in our show notes today. Is there anything you'd like to tell our listeners about the album? Yes, the album, uh, it took us two years to get the album out. The album really experienced the whole pandemic woes. (laughs) So uh, as I mentioned uh, uh, Wen Ting Wu, the Taiwanese drummer, and the Japanese uh, saxo- saxophonist uh, Yumi Ishito, uh, and I performed. Uh, I invited them to join me to f- perform uh, two songs at the uh, annual Dissidents Art Festival uh, in New York in 2019. And uh, we performed two songs. One is called Give Me a Mic. I wrote, I had written the uh, Give Me a Mic, the short song, uh, as uh, the intro to open a concert, actually, uh, two years before. Uh, and uh, I wrote that song as response to my father. My father wrote me uh, an email back in 2015 warning me I am not qualified to be on the stage. He was using a metaphor. You know, he was talking about political uh, activism. He said, I only, I don't even uh, qualify to be a groupie. I only belong to the audience. I wrote back to him saying, all these years, are you still a slave? Something like that. And I cut him off and all my relatives off in China, not because of that, but because at that time, uh, several of my friends, prominent journa- uh, uh, journalists and dissidents in the United States and uh, uh, Europe, uh, they had their relatives in China kidnapped and detained by the Chinese authorities, being used to blackmail them. So I thought the best way, like this is what many Hong Kong activists have been doing recently, cutting them off, all of them. So the Chinese authorities cannot use them to blackmail me. Um, And uh, so that song is very much a heartfelt, uh, how can I say, a mission statement, uh, uh, a call of arms, calling out to people. We're born with a microphone in our mouth and hand a sword in our hand. We're born to speak up, to fight. We don't do not have to ask people, give me a mic. They actually, it's like uh, where I was inspired when I was on the stage, we're testing sounds, doing sound testing. So give me a mic. Then we started to joke about it. So then I, I just wrote it very quickly to open a concert. And the second song, uh, Who Flung Down, 
Uh, actually, Hu Fangdang, I heard from an Irish journalist uh, I worked with in in uh, in, uh, in Hong Kong. Uh, Irish kids used to uh, shout Hu Fangdang to the Chinese uh, people in Ireland, mocking Chinese names. But really, but I used it because I like it. It's like who threw shit? Hey, uh, and I listed all those incidents that happened to me and my bandmates, uh, Wen Ting Wu and, and uh, Ayumi Ishito. Uh, and uh, we rehearsed uh, those two songs, uh, usually um, very vigorously for um, several weeks. Uh, Wen Ting Wu and Ayumi Ishito, they went to pre prestigious colleges in Taiwan, Japan, and New York, and they got their degrees. They're, they're very educated in music and other among other things but i'm i i i came from nowhere basically i learned on bandstand uh by i learned by playing basically i learned through play so uh we had to adjust to each other's methods so in the third poem um flames with no names so I wrote the Hong Kong song because in 2019, that was the revolution raging in Hong Kong when the Hong Kong University uh, campuses were besieged by the violent cops. And uh, I wrote it and related to my experience in Tiananmen massacre, Tiananmen movement. Um, I, I was very emotional about it. So, the, so that song in Chinese is actually a Chinese proverb. Uh, in, in Mandarin is Wu Ming Ye Huo. It's really cathartic stuff. It's like this fire raging inside a person. And I cannot name those flames, right? I cannot name the emotions and whatever, just like enraged with flames. And of course, we're in, uh, inspired by John Coltrane, especially his Alabama. And so the, the whole tune and the, the, the whole mood was very similar to Alabama. I like what you said at the start about art and music being something that people can feel. And so it's more effective in that way. And it's, you know, it's more global, you know, people all over the world will be able to relate. Yeah, it's universal language. Yeah. yeah. And so I'm really excited for our listeners to listen to your new album. We will link it in our show notes so everyone can have a listen. Um, and that's all we have time for today, Rose. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you for sharing all your experiences and the absolute breadth of knowledge that you've acquired over your lifetime um, and, <laughs> and your music and art as well. Thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you, Kaneki. And that was Kaneki with uh, Rose Tang, and she was talking about the meaning behind her lyrics and the racism she and her bandmates faced as Asian women in the music industry. That was a really fantastic interview and really passionate. Uh, now we're going to go to a song by Kai, who's a Nam-based and Zimbabwe-born and London-raised artist. Uh, her full name is Kylie Chirunga, and she had a solo project called Kai in 2019. She's launched this project. Um, she released her EP of the same name last year, and so here's Good Company. You got me doing stupid things for you, got me jumping through the rings of fool, 
me doing stupid things for you. Got me jumping through the brakes, a fool. And I can't even help it. At least I'm in good. Can't keep my And just over the back there is Kai with Good Company. So yesterday I spoke with Elise West from the Medical Association for Prevention of War. Now, regular listeners might remember that for our Disarmament Week special in 2021, we spoke with Elise about MAPW's report, Miners and Missiles, which looks into weapons companies and their influence on STEM programs in Australian schools. I caught up with Elise again yesterday to ask her for any updates regarding the issue. Um, and uh, we also spoke about uh, Australia's recent $3.5 billion tank purchase with the US, contemporary uh, militarism in the country, as well as the numerous campaigns the MAPW will be working on in the upcoming months. Thank you, Elise, for joining us on Tuesday Breakfast again. Last time you were on the show, it was part of our Disarmament Week special. And you came on Tuesday Breakfast to talk to us about the MAPW's report, Minor and Missiles, uh, looking into weapons companies and their influence on STEM programs in schools. Were there any updates? that you wanted to give us around this issue or around weapons companies in general? Thanks for having me on and, and happy new year to everybody and um, an update on weapons companies and STEM education. So later last year, we did manage to disrupt a partnership between the children's charity Smith Family and the weapons company BAE Systems. So BAE Systems had signed a partnership with the Smith Family to provide funding for their STEM education programs. And um, while the Smith family does excellent work and that STEM education is really valuable and all kids should have access, we felt um, that it was inappropriate for a company that profits from harm to children 
to, um, I guess, uh, clean up its image by partnering with such a reputable charity. Um, we engaged with the um, leadership of the Smith family um, and eventually when the media picked it up, um, they did announce that the partnership was ending early. We think that's a good thing um, and we also know that um, people, you know, supporters of the Smith family were also happy to see that, got, um, that partnership end as well. Uh, we've also written to education ministers in all of the states and territories to ask them to um, tell us what their policy is on partnerships with weapons companies. So most education departments have a policy that you can't have, schools can't have relationships with companies that create harmful products. So like alcohol and tobacco and so forth. So we've asked them if this would also apply to companies that make harmful products like um, bombs, for example. So um, we'll let you know how that goes. We're hopeful that we can get some policy change at the department level. Yeah, that well, that's awesome to hear about the Smith family and, and also great to hear that you know, MAPW is doing all this work behind the scenes to disrupt and engage directly with the Department of Education and organisations where a lot of people, a lot of supporters or, or even people within these organisations might not actually know the, the truth about some of these weapon companies or do you think that's the case and that a lot of people just don't know what's really happening? I would say, um, yes, that is the case and that is what perfectly suits weapons companies and that's the purpose of, um, of their partnerships with organisations and charities who do great work. Often these partnerships, they're actually not worth a lot of money. They might only be in you know, the tens of thousands of dollars and the benefits really flow to the weapons companies mainly who then kind of promote this association with positive causes, for example, and kind of um, you know, misdirect people as to what the source of their profits actually are. Right. Now to more recent news. The Sydney Morning Herald recently reported that Australia has entered a $3.5 billion deal with the US purchasing tanks. Uh, what do we know about this deal already? All right. So um, you're correct. So early in January, the government announced its intention to import 120 tanks and armoured vehicles from the US. And as you say, that's about um, $3.5 billion worth of heavy armoured vehicles. So amongst the deal are 75 latest model Abrams tanks. Um, if you think about a tank, just sum up a picture in your mind of a tank that's that's what it is um, right yeah these are, these are the latest models they've got um, a smart gun that can fire munitions that are programmable over a data link they're equipped with explosive reactive armor um, they have electronic warfare weapons like a built-in jammer that's to counter um, radio triggered ieds for example they've got sophisticated information and communication systems um, they're equipped with sensors they can be networked and of course and probably this is the most important point is that they're interoperable with the u.s army tanks who also deploy the same model so these new tanks are replacing 59 abrams tanks that australia currently has and not a single one of those tanks has ever seen a single second of combat and in fact Australia has not deployed a tank in combat since the Vietnam War. Um, overall Australia is going to spend about 40 billion dollars on armoured vehicles over the coming decades and this is all you know land systems that are designed for ground operations including at close range and if it strikes the public as strange that Australia is investing so much money in kind of land combat systems then the public is probably right because there's a bit of a dissonance here. Um, only a few months ago when AUKUS was announced, 
the public was told it was absolutely essential that Australia has long-range maritime and long-range missile capability. So the idea that there was a threat kind of far off our shores or that Australia would be kind of leaving its own shores um, to address threats that are far away. Um, and a few years ago, listeners might remember the F-35, which is a supersonic long-range self-fighter, was also sort of touted as being just the business for exactly the same reason, that we needed to be able to travel long distances and defend at long range. But the tanks and the other land systems in this deal won't be useful in the case of a major conflict in the Asia-Pacific, which is what Australia is sort of predicting will be, you know, the next big threat. Mm. Um, in the case of these Abrams tanks, they're too heavy for Australia's amphibious landing boats, so they can't be driven onto a boat, for example, and, and, and taken off to some offshore theatre. And even if they could be transported, some analysts say that they would be too heavy for the roads and bridges in our near region. And others even say that they're too heavy even for parts of northern Australia. So say where roads are degraded or subject to flooding, those kind of things. So, you know, what exactly are they for? And the utility of these tanks for the defence of Australia has been, been questioned. Yeah, I mean, I was about to ask what might seem like a really obvious question, but given that there are all these obstacles in the way of, of Australia actually deploying these tanks and and given the fact that, you know, like you said, the current tanks were not used at all in combat and that Australia hasn't used a tank in combat since the Vietnam War, why has the government purchased all these land tanks? <laughs> well, um, a very good question. I think it's probably symptomatic of um, the increasing... Um, alliance between the US and Australia. Um, these tanks really prepare Australia for a specific kind of war. And once we're prepared for this kind of war, it becomes both less and more likely to, to occur. But either way, it alters the way Australia conducts itself in relation to its allies and also in relation to sort of any perceived threats. And this is not just an issue for the armed forces, it's got enormous importance for the future of security of Australia. And, and decisions are being made on our behalf by defence and by Parliament that'll affect all of us for, for generations, but the public's not really given a role. Mm. Um, I think, you know, Australian defence policy is being shaped by the concept of strategic competition between the US and China. Um, you know, the Defence Department says, quote, you know, there's less remote than in the past possibility of a high-intensity conflict in the Asia-Pacific. Presumably that's US and, and China and the event of this conflict, Australia really would be obliged to, to enter in support of the United States. Um, so I think, you know, the tanks are sort of symptomatic of this increasing dependence and interreliance on the United States and the idea that Australia is becoming more and more like a forward operating base for the United States in our region. Um, so we see more US equipment, um, closer um, Alliances between troops, for example, we've seen more troops rotating through Australia, more stationing, more maintenance, joint and combined training. And it's like Australia is almost building a, a miniature US Army in terms of its equipment and the way it operates and also, you know, the, the threats that it's preparing itself to or the, the perceived threats that it's preparing itself to, to respond to. That's quite a terrifying image. <laughs> Um, there, I'm um, laughing, but no, you're right. It, yeah, you know, it, it is it is terrifying, and I think it's just really important to reiterate that the public is not being given a role in in these decisions. Um, 
because they do fundamentally shape our future. I think a, an example of this is the AUKUS agreement, which just kind of came out of nowhere. Um, mm. It was just kind of announced and we were getting nuclear submarines and all of this was, was going to happen. I just wanted to touch briefly on what you were saying before, that contradiction between acquiring all these weapons and, and tanks and, and submarines, making conflict and war both more likely and less likely, given that the government says that it's to protect Australia and its interests, but also by purchasing these tanks and, and these submarines to other countries, it does seem like an escalation or a move towards conflict. Correct. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So I think the key there is um, this is where diplomacy comes in, right? And unfortunately, Australia's diplomatic capacity is just so thoroughly degraded and you only need to watch the news for a week <laughs> to see, you know, how, how poorly we often conduct ourselves on the international stage. So it, it's quite worrying that we're sort of arming ourselves to the teeth and hitching our wagon to the United States and its security interests and yet we don't have a corresponding um, plan to boost our diplomatic capacity to prevent the war that we keep saying well, ministers in the government keep saying is, is probably going to happen. Um, nobody wants that to happen, so you need to ensure that it doesn't and we don't see enough attention given to the, the diplomatic capacity that we need. You're currently listening to a discussion with Elise West from the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. We're going to take a short break and we'll be back with part two right after this. Keep it locked to 3CR. Are you a taxi or rideshare driver? CPVV believes that the journey is just as important as the destination. For people with a disability, using taxi or rideshare can be challenging due to refused services, intrusive questions and drivers denying assistance animals. As a driver, you make a difference. Be the reason people with a disability have a great trip. Authorised by CPVV. A 3CR supporter. Welcome back uh, to 3CR. We're now going to listen to part two of an interview that I had with Elise West. Just before the break, Elise was talking about the lack of attention giving to building uh, Australia's diplomatic capacity uh, rather than spending money and resources on defence and military weapons and vehicles. So we're now going to go to the final part of the interview. And I start by situating this recent tanks deal between Australia and the US within the context of COVID. And I can't help but situate this this latest, I guess, development within, you know, our current situation, which is COVID and and Omicron and and vaccines and rapid tests and all and investing money and resources into our public health systems and looking after you know um, those who are most vulnerable in the community yeah it's just hard to fathom that that over the next however many years Australia is has committed to spending what did you say earlier 40 billion dollars um, on That's just a fraction of it. Yeah. 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 Well, in, in 2021, US arms sales to Australia were 8.6 billion. That's helicopters and combat systems and remote piloted aircrafts and Chinooks and Hellfire mm -hmm. missiles. You know, that was just last year, $8.6 billion. And it's really painful to talk about this kind of spending on the tools of war when, as, as you say, so many of us throughout the pandemic have suffered the effects of real insecurity, like day to day insecurity whether because of having insecure work or housing or 
having a safety deprioritized because you have you're aged or you have a disability um and it's not just the money i think when we talk about billions we can sort of forget what that means but um, aside from the dollar amounts, what's become really apparent over the pandemic is that governments can spend whatever they want to if they want to. Mm. So it's a question of priorities. So, you know, if we spend $8.6 billion on US, you know, military hardware and the NDIA is underfunded, that's a political choice. Mm. That That is a choice that has been made. It's not we don't see the budget anymore as a as a pie whereas if you you know you spend that much there's less left for everything else we, we know now that it's about priorities mm-hmm. and I think that's something that should be of great concern to the public. Uh, I guess the other thing that I think about as well is is the impact that this will have on the climate. I was wondering if you could talk to us about I guess the impact that the military and and these weapons and, and vehicles have on our environment. Yes, well, you know, the, the relationship between kind of conflict to the environment is really complex but well established. So, you know, on the one hand, you know, even just the um, the development of weapons themselves can be um, environmentally catastrophic. Um, militaries are huge emitters and are not included in national um, emissions um tallies so there's a there's a campaign at the moment that is asking states to make sure that they include military emissions in their overall tally um but you know i think i've I've seen something that says if the pentagon was a you know a country it would be the third biggest emitter something like that (laughs) yeah so you know there's a really significant um you know direct environmental impact but we also know that you know there's a a problem where the climate becomes securitized as as an issue where um, instead of addressing the the root cause it becomes securitized in the sense that becomes a source of conflict so um, you know you see that it becomes like a policing problem or a defense problem rather than an environmental problem so when you say that you know seas are going to rise and it's going to create refugees the issue is about keeping them out you, you know using the military to keep them out um, or in the case of Australia it's identified that the army will need to respond to environmental kind of and social crises as a, as a result so then you get domestic deployment of the armed forces which you know I think is very unnerving um, in a lot of ways and it's not really what the military is designed to do yet there's no real significant effort to um, seek a, another solution. Yeah I guess I see a parallel to that um, of that to you know what we saw with COVID lockdown in 2020, and I guess last year as well, having police being deployed to certain suburbs, certain areas of of Victoria, New South Wales to enforce health measures. Yes. Um, And we know that, you know, they are not qualified or equipped in any way to deal with that. I guess military being deployed to to respond to climate issues is, is very much the same. Yes, yeah, that's correct. And I think that's kind of contemporary militarism in action, right? That in, in case of any crisis, you you deploy um, a military or military-like force. And, you know, we've even had a, a military general in charge of, you know, the COVID response standing up in front of the Australian public in, in a military uniform, um, which I think has been absolutely extraordinary that this, <laughs> this is happening before our very eyes. Mm. Um, 
and I think that has really, you know, I think it is a really good expression of where we are in terms of Australian militarism, that this is somehow, you know, acceptable. Yeah. Well, you were saying before that the public are not privy to, to what's going on in terms of these deals and, and how it all comes together to form a big picture of, of Australian, of the Australian military and our position uh, on, on war and engaging in conflicts. And I know the Medical Association for Prevention of War is great at, at sort of exposing all of that and helping people to understand what's going on. Could you uh, tell us what are some of the campaigns that you're working on this year, 2022, or what do you have your eye on at the moment or in the, in the coming months? Well, I think the next um, the next thing that we should all be um, looking for is a, a khaki election. So with an election probably coming in May, um, we're quite concerned that this will be an election focusing on issues of law and order and safety and security, the threat of war and essentially the stoking of fear in the public. So um, last year we saw quite a bit of that. The phrase drums of war was kind of banded about and the idea that um, a war with China was inevitable um, in some way. And this is a really classic tactic of an incumbent government, especially one that's in electoral trouble to um, stoke fear of an external threat. Um, And I think after two years of of a pandemic, we're especially psychologically primed to be afraid, to to be fearful of others, um, to be more nationalistic. And I think over the past two years, our internal divisions have really deepened and, and widened as well. So we're concerned that this um, khaki election will do significant damage, perhaps not, you know, not in the sense of leading to an actual war, but when you stoke divisions, um, it has real consequences for people in their everyday lives. Um, when you say that China is the enemy, that affects people here in Australia, um, Asian Australian people who, you know, report spikes in racism, who no longer feel comfortable in, you know, in the street. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really concerning to us. Um, we'll have a lot more to say about that <laughs> in, yeah. the, in the coming months. Um, the 22nd of January uh, marks one year since the entry into force of the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. So that's the day that nuclear weapons became illegal under international law. And the abolition of nuclear weapons is a really key mission for MAPW. So we will continue to bang on about that until the job is done. Um, In December last year, our Quit Nukes campaign, which is a disinvestment campaign, released a big report on Australian super funds policies and practices on investments in nuclear weapons companies. And we'll continue to to work in that field as well. And for a few years now, we have been drawing attention to the Australian arms trade with a particular focus on Australian exports that fuel uh, the war in Yemen. So the war in Yemen is coming up to its, what's in its seventh year. Um, It's one of the greatest humanitarian crises we've ever seen, but shockingly little attention is paid or action taken um, to assist the people of Yemen um, to halt the war or to stop Australian businesses profiting from the misery that's un- unravelling there. Um, the Australian export system operates under almost blanket secrecy and is basically designed to protect businesses 
um, without any accountability or any transparency whatsoever. Um, so we will also keep banging on about that until we make some change there too. We would like to see the Australian government cease all military exports to Saudi Arabia and the UAE. Wow, that is a lot. <laughs> That is a lot, but we are so appreciative and grateful for, for the work of the MAPW and, and to you, Elise, for, for coming on our show again to, to talk us through all of these complex issues. Um, we would love to have you on the show again in the coming months just to see how many of these things have panned out or continue to pan out. But uh, once again, thank you so much, Elise, for joining us on Tuesday Breakfast today. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. That was Elise West from MAPW. To learn more about the organisation and to read about many of the issues and campaigns discussed in the interview with Fung, please go to mapw.org.au. Tuesday Breakfast would like to thank our friends at Living Coco for their support of the program. Living Coco puts community first by respecting food sovereignty. Based in Braybrook, they create bean-to-bar chocolates, cacao tea, intentional drinking cacao and cacao mass in bulk. A zero-waste manufacturing space, Living Coco ethically source cacao from over 130 domestic village farms in Samoa. They are at livingcoco.com or on Facebook and Instagram. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am, or maybe you're streaming online at 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. We are now in our final uh, segment for today's show and uh, we're going to be well I'm going to be interviewing <laughs> 3CR Tuesday Breakfast very own Evie uh, um, on some of the recent updates regarding the federal government's religious discrimination bill um, and and how it could negatively impact the LGBTIQA plus community Hello, Evie. Hello. Um, I'm speaking in my official capacity now as um, the co-convener for the Victorian Pride Lobby. Um, but, yeah, so there's been a lot of um, things going on behind the scenes over the break on the religious discrimination bill. Yeah, so could you just uh, please start by giving us a very brief update on where the government is at with this bill? Yeah, so um, there have been... Um, you may remember at the end of last year, um, there was still a lot of continued negotiation about the terms of the bill. So over the break, there were some inquiries um, into which um, various individuals and organisations have made submissions on how um, the religious exemptions bill would impact them and also how previous incidents have um you know, affected uh, the ability for teachers and students um, to uh, attend religious colleges and also have lawful employment. Um, so there has been an interesting development in terms of a discussion of a thing called a statement of belief clause. Um, and this could impact LGBTQI plus people in a pretty significant way. Um, I'm going to use an example um, that has been uh, used of a teacher that was lawfully fired for being gay. Um, her name's Steph Lentz. 
and she was lawfully sacked in January 2021 from Covenant Christian School in Belrose, which is in Sydney's northeast, um, after she told the school the previous year that she was a lesbian. And, you know, this story is a really significant one. It demonstrates the threat posed by the Religious Discrimination Bill, um, not just to LGBTIQ plus teachers like Steph, but also to students. Um, In particular, um, this inquiry... Um, over the break um, prompted a response from um, the Anglican Diocese of Sydney, um, which shows exactly how religious fundamentalists plan to discriminate against LGBTIQ plus people, but they'll call it something else. Mm. Um, So what happened here is that Reverend Michael Stead, who chairs the Anglican Diocese of Sydney's Religious Freedom Reference Group, um, he argued in his submission that Miss Lentz was not sacked for being gay and called that interpretation, quote, a sensationalist headline. And his statement went... um, Correctly understood, the teacher's sexuality is not the key issue in this case. A heterosexual teacher who held the same theological views on sexuality and relationships and therefore was unable to sign the statement of belief, which would also have his or her employment terminated. Conversely, there are those in the LGBTIQ plus community who self-identify as celibate gay Christians who would be able to sign the school's statement of belief. So basically, the terms of employment are that you sign this statement that says that you believe that, you know, that, you know, that the affirmation that homosexuality is intrinsically disordered or that God created only man and woman and therefore transgender people do not exist. Um, And if you don't sign that, the religious school would be free to discriminate you against you under the bill. So, okay. So let me get this straight. So it's not saying that you could be terminated for being gay but you could be terminated for not signing this statement that says that purports one of these things like yeah so yeah okay yeah it's really confusing it's it's quite convoluted yeah it's I would say it's deliberately confusing um and also like it's let's let's be honest it's it's one of those things that they say it's not discriminatory but it is discriminatory um you can say like you know this isn't discriminating against someone for being gay it's just discriminating discriminating against you for believing that being gay is okay or practicing being gay or whatever sort of belief they have in this that's yeah (laughs) okay so yeah so the, the the general gist of it is that um now as a part of um, the discrimination bill is to in- make sure that this statement of belief is protected um, as a condition of employment. Um, so, yeah, it, it's it's definitely not a good turn of events. Mm. Um, and there's also um, a further thing, um, which is that support for the bill um, between um, – Liberal Party MPs and Labor MPs has also shifted as time has gone on. So a lot of the reason why this bill has been so delayed is, of course, you know, there's a lot of of, uh, functionality to this bill that is being disputed. Um, So um, there's been a lot of constant tweaking depending on different demands. um, And there's a lot of conflict between the Liberal Party, between more religiously conservative members and others. So there are Liberal MPs, there's four of them, um, Katie Allen, Dave Sharma, Angie Bell and Fiona Martin. Um, At the end of last year, um, they claimed that they'd won Michaela Cash, who's the Attorney General. They claimed they'd won her agreement to remove 
a section from the Sex Discrimination Act, which allows schools to discriminate on sexuality and gender grounds in return for their support of the religious discrimination bill um, that would sort of um, make sure that students or teachers could not be fired for being gay or for for their sexuality in general. Um, But Michaela Cash appears to have walked back on this agreement. Um, There was a furious backlash, as you could imagine, after she made this announcement at the end of last year uh, from the Australian Christian Lobby and the Christian Schools Australia Association. Uh, They threatened to withdraw their lobbying support over the deal for the Liberal Party. Um, And so her sort of statement now is to reveal that broad protections to make sure that LGBTIQ plus students um, would have to wait for another 12 months, which is ridiculous. Yeah, so how would that – so for for those 12 months, there would be very little, if any, protection for queer students. Yeah, so banning – so that means that the banning of expulsion um, queer students could be enacted immediately. Um, But reforms preventing students being punished – in other ways, would have to wait for the Australian Law for Reform Commission review. Um, and that, again, would be in 12 months. So basically it's enacting this bill and then waiting a further 12 months to see what happens. Wow, that's, um, that's really scary and, yeah. really, and really troubling for, for the LGBTIQ plus community. Um, just very quickly, we've got a couple of minutes left. I know that there are state-based anti-discrimination laws in place. How would this federal bill impact that? That's a really good question. Um, So, like you, as you and you know, some of our listeners may know, um, the Equal Opportunity uh, Religious Exemptions Bill 2021 passed in Victoria at the end of last year. Right. And that bill narrowed exemptions um, in our state anti-discrimination laws that allowed faith-based schools and organisations to discriminate excuse me, to discriminate against queer workers and students and also people who relied on their support. So it's a very broad-based protection of people. And those reforms prohibit faith-based schools and organisations from firing, expelling or treating unfairly um, employees and students and people who rely on their services simply because of their orientation. So obviously now there's a conflict here with what the AG's office has confirmed. Um, The Victorian government has actually vowed to fight any attempts by the federal government to override these state-based rules. Um, So the Victorian AG, um, Jacqueline Symes, said while it's unclear at the moment what the federal government's intentions are, she said she wouldn't rule out any action to fight state laws being overridden. She sought advice in relation to the draft bill and what it may mean for Victorians. And she has said very firmly that if there's any attempts to water down the Victorian laws, um, she's very firmly opposed to any measures to do that. Okay. Well, it seems like there are a lot of moving parts when it comes to this bill, a lot of back and forth um, and, and deals being made. Yeah. Deals. Um, but thank you so much, Evie, for giving us an update on that. I'm, I'm sure there will be lots more to discuss in the coming weeks and months. I will say one more thing. Yeah. You should definitely write to your MPs about this. Write about your concerns. Make it personal if you are queer as well. Make sure you have a personal impact statement on how it would feel to be, you know, a queer student in school being Im- impacted by these laws. Great. Yes, that's a that's a. Um, amazing call to action. Um, well, we may as well wrap up today's show because we're nearly out of time. Um, our first show for 2022 or yeah. our first live show. <laughs> um, so earlier 
this morning, uh, Carnegie spoke with political activist, artist and Tiananmen Square survivor Rose Tung about uh, lots of things, about racism, art, activism. Uh, definitely check out their new album, Pause and Effect. Uh, and then I spoke with Elise West from the Medical Association for Prevention of War, and we looked at Australia's recent um, tank purchase uh, that equates to roughly $3.5 billion and, and looked at you know what that means for Australia's position um, and and its relationship with the US. Um, and and Elise also gave us a bit of an update on on what's going to be happening within MAPW, what they're working on in the next few months. And Evie. Yeah, and then we had a bit of a chat about the updates to the Religious Discrimination Bill and discussions about what its future may look like. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Evie, for being on the show today. Um, It's good to be back. It is definitely very nice to be back Um, and hopefully we'll have Genevieve and Carnegie back with us next week. So stay tuned. Up next, uh, we've got Accent of Women and, uh, yeah, also check out um, 3CR Breakfast every other day this week at 7am. We will see you next week. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.